0: to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up.
1: You're looking for an ethical treat in the supermarket and then you're down the rabbit hole reading the backs of packs. Chocolate makers loving Earth make it easy. Their gorgeous chocolate satisfies more than the taste buds. The whole DNA of the company centres around regenerating the planet. They source their cacao from the indigenous Camito Ene Cooperative in Peru, who they've been working with for over a decade. And to top it off, the packaging is home compostable. Loving Earth is a company that is big on looking after the planet. They're called Loving Earth for a reason. Check them out at your local grocer or health food store. Hi, I'm Nathan, and this is the Dumbo Feather Podcast. I acknowledge the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nations, where I'm talking to you from today. We've got an epic conversation with one of the most sophisticated thinkers on the planet today, the social philosopher Daniel Schmachtenberger. Barry spoke with Daniel for our Systems Change issue of the magazine, a special edition for this crucial moment in history, which comes out March 24. Daniel is co-founder of Civilization Emerging and the Consilience Project, and has a particular focus in his work on existential threats to humanity and the importance of collective sense-making. He's able to illustrate the three-dimensional and intersectional realities of the problems we find ourselves in right now, from war to climate change to social upheaval, and suggests that we have not reached the limits of our cognitive capacity to solve for them. He's inspiring many, including us, to look clearly at this moment before it's too late. Now, because this was a humdinger of a chat, which will require you to pause and process and probably rewind in many parts, we've split the conversation into two episodes, and the second will be in your feed next week. So buckle in and have a notebook and pen handy for the first part of this chat between Daniel and Barry.
0: I can't believe I'm talking to you today, 48 hours into Russia invading the Ukraine. The first video I saw when I woke up this morning was a Ukrainian mother with her nine-year-old son just saying, I'm afraid, but I'm trying to just keep it normal so their children aren't afraid. There's a lot of toggling what you know is going on with school lunch, watching them do cute things and knowing that I was coming to talk to you
2: cognitive dissonance was never as bad before we had access to know what was going on in the rest of the world because if there was a problem that we were aware of it was probably affecting us or closer when you can know what's going on at a global level with climate change and the reefs everywhere and endangered species and wars everywhere and you can't really respond to any of those the awareness agency mismatch is pretty severe But there's also something around being there at the school thing and watching your kids do that performance that connects you to what is motivating any of the work for why you would want to help the Ukraine or anywhere else and grounding in that mother's experience there is the abstraction without instantiation is what ends up leading to all the problems leads to abstract game theory decisions not grounded in this life. We just call it collateral damage as opposed to who that collateral damage is.
0: Yeah, that's true and can be hard to hold. The world that we grew up in is fast disappearing. The institutions that we relied on to maintain peace in the world and stability, everything's changing. We're all trying to make sense of it. Incredible to have the opportunity to talk to someone like you on a day like today. So I just wanted to know what was on your mind and what are you thinking about?
2: I definitely don't have a deep expertise in international relations and all the geopolitics related to Eastern Europe. But this is not an unpredicted scenario for me, or I think lots of people have been thinking about it. The world, as most people who are alive have known it, is something that wasn't created all that long ago. And it's important to understand that the post-World War II system was kind of the first really architected global system of its kind. Most people who were born are born into it and then take it for granted as if it's forever been, which is very ahistorical perspective. That world system did achieve one of the major goals that it's set to achieve, which is that the superpowers didn't have a major kinetic World War III in that time. But I would say that world system is coming to an end. And what we're seeing right now is one of many things that go along with that. The direction the world goes is a big question. I think it's actually pretty insightful to look at why the world had to reorganize itself after World War II so significantly and why that system's coming to an end and what comes next, if that's the area you want to go into.
0: Yeah, that would be amazing. I think that maybe it's human nature, but for a lot of people, the world starts when they're born and finishes when they die. I was raised to be a student of history. All the books by my mother's bedside table are historical biographies. And she would always be talking to me about the context in which certain agreements were reached and how we got to here. There's been a complacency in my generation, for sure, to lean hard on capitalism, lean hard on rule of law. I'd love a description of what you do and how you think about how we got to here and where we're going, because it goes against all institutional learning.
2: So I was homeschooled. My parents were informally educational theorists very interested in how could you raise humans differently and maybe better. And because it was informal and they didn't study all that had been known about educational theory, they did some experimenting that was pretty novel and great and some things where they could have learned a lot, but that's how experimenting goes. The process was a little bit aligned with what people call unschooling today, which was there wasn't a curriculum. And it was more with the idea of foster the innate interest of a kid, provide things for them to respond to. Then they will pay attention to and remember things that they're actually interested in, help the relevance of the topics really sink in, help the interconnectivity of the topics. And that in doing so, you're also fostering deeper interest and desire to learn rather than forcing them to focus on something they aren't interested in and kind of breaking their interest. In order for that to work, the level of depth of interest and curiosity and fascination and passion of the parents and the teachers is very important because to a large degree that kids are going to be modeling, they're witnessing what they're exposed to and how they're exposed to it matters because someone's not going to be really interested in math or history or art or nature if they're not exposed to it at all, or if they're exposed to it in a way that isn't all that interesting. And so based on what I was exposed to, what my parents were interested in, and whatever degree, my innate aptitude. I was mostly focused on and interested in all the philosophic traditions, fundamental questions. What is the nature of reality? What's real? How do we know what is meaningful?
0: For normal people, those are big questions that you started asking when you were nine.
2: I think most kids ask these questions and they just don't get fostered all that much that are actually pretty deep and profound. Early, a kid starts asking, what is that? What is that? What is that? And they're trying to kind of get the anatomy of universe, the naming of it. But then they ask why, why, why? And the why is trying to get both the nature of how things work and why they work, why anything matters. And so often don't have the time or attention or they don't know or they hit their own frustration or they realize that they hit the limit of the fact that they don't know who prints dollar bills. They don't know why bacteria are asexual and animals are sexual. They don't know what happens after we die. They don't know whatever the questions are. They don't know why fire is hot. They don't even know how to address those things. Rather than say, actually, that's really interesting. I'm interested too. Let's go figure it out together. They redirect the kid to something that is more tractable, but the kid's also less interested in and is also less deep. So then the fact that the kid grows up to be interested in less deep things is not just human nature. It's also what was fostered. I think in my experience, getting to spend time with kids, they're mostly interested in deep questions if there's space. So for me, those fundamental questions of what is real, how do we know, what is important, what is meaningful, what is a meaningful human life, to what degree is that the same for everyone, to what degree is it different, and and what is the basis of assessing that? Why is civilization the way it is? What would a better civilization be? How did this one come to be the way it is? Like all those types of questions. The philosophies were interesting to me, and it was actually more Eastern than Western at first. And Western came later and asking basic things like, why is law this way? And why do the police have the right to do that? And other people don't. And where does money come from? And why are we interested in it? And is everything that is valuable, purchasable with money? And if not, why? Those questions of just interacting with anything, how does a laptop get made? If you keep asking why and you get to it, we'll bring you to those fundamental things. So. All the sciences were interesting, and I didn't think of it like there were different sciences. There's just application of process to understand how the universe we find ourselves in works. But then went to do animal rights work with Greenpeace and Kalberg and human rights work with Amnesty International. And similarly, there were like no areas of science that weren't interesting. There were no deep philosophic questions that weren't interesting. There were none of those areas of activism that weren't interesting, like seeing a whale suffer or seeing a forest get cut down or seeing kids starve. I think anyone responds to those things if they're exposed, as this is a meaningful thing that should be different and we should pay attention to. So that kind of braid were the main focuses. And because I was engaged in a lot of areas of activism, I got to see how much some areas were not paying attention to the other areas adjacent to them, and the problems were obviously interconnected. Also fortunate, the thinkers my parents were interested in were Buckminster like Fuller and design science and David Bohm and Krishnamurti. It was a good set of early philosophers to be exposed to. I got to start realizing that the activism wasn't dealing with the fundamental causes of the problems very well, and that the problems in all the areas had similar causes. There was obviously perverse economic incentive underneath factory farms and underneath the forest being cut down and species extinction and for-profit war. The last thing I would have felt I was interested in was economics until recognizing it was something that was fundamental to human behavior at scale and governance and those types of things. So then I started looking at how are all the issues interconnected? What are the deepest drivers of them? Because I really suffered with the idea that I would focus on animal rights and leave extreme poverty and not pay any attention and not help it. Or that I'd focus on that and not work on environmental issues. And it was like, there was an innate intuition that it all mattered. It was all interconnected. And like, how do we pay attention to the whole thing? And it turns out that the focus of it as individual parts is part of the problem.
0: Yes, I love it and I'm feeling two feelings. The first feeling, A, I totally wish we were friends when we were kids and I feel like definitely in Australia, being intense and deep and a weaver in your thinking, it's not actually encouraged culturally here. Everyone tries to channel and steer and get a monofocus. There's a panic if you are a weaver and you see the interconnectedness of it all. I feel kinship with what you're saying. And that if we're not addressing the interconnectedness of all things, we're not going to solve correctly for the problems.
2: Yeah, it's a tricky one. Growing up with folks who are very heterodox in their thinking about education like Buckminster Fuller and very, very deep polymathic generalists, I had a pretty negative take on the idea of academic specialization in general that was not paying adequate respect to the evolutionary role specialism played. You and I are communicating Uh on laptops that no human in the world knows how to make. From all of the software that's involved to all of the hardware to the fundamental math underneath the capacity to do those for not just the machines, but the satellites that are (laughs) communicating the internet signal. There's a lot of specialists advancing a lot of things. And there's something kind of holistically beautiful about the idea that the whole knowledge that is held by humanity at a larger scale. The division of labor in the tribe means that people get to be better at stuff than they did if they had to do everything on their own. And the tribe then depends upon each other. I think the topic of collective intelligence, the complexity of the problems that we face is such that no human can be an expert even in a specialty anymore. Many universities with neuroscientists printing stuff, someone can't even be an expert in their area of neuroscience anymore, meaning knows all the published literature on the topic. This is what's often called the information singularity, let alone all of the topics together to be able to make governance decisions. Well, then how do we make wise choices with that level of complexity and where anything that we do for reason X that we're measuring and optimizing for will also affect Y, Z, etc.? How do you factor those better? Markets are a mechanism and institutions are a mechanism and they do some things well, which is why this internet works. And there's some things they really do not well, which is why we have so many environmental crises and massive species extinction and biodiversity loss and nuclear escalation and arms races on every new technology. The things that the current system doesn't do well that really matter, it's not converging on a path to do adequately, have been the topic of major interest most of my life.
0: So you've been thinking about incredibly complex systems and the interconnectedness of all these things for a very, very long time. I know that you work on existential threats to humanity and you're thinking about these issues in an order of magnitude. So maybe if you could just talk a little bit about what are the things we should be thinking about? What are the top threats as you understand them? And... How do we name them correctly and diagnose the problems?
2: First, I don't think that it's true that everyone should be thinking about the most pressing existential risks with much of their time and attention because they don't necessarily have anything they can really do about it. Their calling might not be there and that's just not the best use of their bandwidth or capacity all of the maintenance of the world that nurses and teachers and firefighters and whatever are doing really matters. So a lot of people should continue to put their attention in the areas where they have more agency. Otherwise, it's very easy to just feel increasingly overwhelmed. And like you're aware of all these problems, you have no agency to solve. And as a result, you actually don't even use the agency you could in the scopes where you could. So coupling your sense making in your agency actually matters. If you think of it from an evolutionary perspective, evolution selects for the ability to respond to what is sensed, but it selects for that closed loop. If I could sense something that I couldn't act on, there would be no evolutionary advantage that sensing wouldn't get selected for. If I had some ability to act that wasn't informed by sensing, you just randomly like jump or punch or something that obviously wouldn't (laughs) get selected for. It's the ability for sensing, making sense of acting on and then sensing again, that new world post acting on it we've been able to use technology to extend all of our capacities. We can make a hammer that extends our fist. We can make a computer that extends cognitive capabilities. As a result, we've been able to take our ability to sense the world and extend it radically through news and TV and social media channels, whatever, to be able to sense all kinds of stuff that we can't actually make sense of. Can we process what the IPCC's model on climate change thinks and the parallax of different models to say which one is right? Most people can't make sense of the things that they're sensing. And then even to the degree they have made sense of something and they believe they really have a sense of it, they can't act on it. And then to the degree they're acting by purchasing a laptop that affected a six-continent supply chain, they can't sense the effects of their actions. So that loop is broken open. I'll share some things about state of the world because everyone being a citizen of the world, to some degree, it can be orienting. I don't suggest that everyone morbidly focus on everything wrong with the world in a way that doesn't increase your agency to contribute to the world.
0: The agency piece is really powerful. And that's what we try to do also is give that agency and leadership for a hopeful future. So people can plug in this incredible conversation and opportunity but it needs to be applied within your remit it's the sum of us that are going to address the conversation we're having
2: you know that's the reason that i'm interested in talking about this doing podcast and stuff is for the people who are interested having more total collective intelligence focused on the most fundamental problems is important and so for those who feel called to i'll lay some things out that are areas i would like a lot more people's innovation and problem solving to be working on So you were mentioning existential risk. Existential risk generally means something that would end human civilization as we know it, either all sapiens or modern civilization or something like that, different definitions. Then we have catastrophic risks that are not full-blown existential, but would really suck, right? would take life out for a lot of people, leave lasting harm in the biosphere, regress the quality of civilization. How I got interested in that topic was focusing on environmental issues. And seeing all the environmental work that was happening in the NGO sector and in governments and private actors who were trying to do like for benefit business, that species extinction was still advancing, that damage to coral and ocean environments, to dead zones and oceans, and that new problems like microplastics and whatever were advancing. Very few of the problems were getting better. And so then I wanted to start looking at the forecast of if it continues to advance this way. And obviously, if CO2 continues to advance this way and other greenhouse gases, we get the climate change scenario. But there's lots of those scenarios. So you get things like the limits of growth model, right? And so MIT, Club of Rome, did the computer model of looking at you're running a linear materials economy where you're extracting things from the earth faster than they can be recreated on this side and then turning them into waste and pollution on this side faster than they can be processed, where that's connected to a financial system that has to have year over year exponential growth because of compounding interest and like that. Which means you're going from an exponential extraction and waste system on a finite planet. You can't do that forever, right? So you start to hit limits of growth on both sides. So I came across that work, limits of growth specifically, another forecast like that when I was young. And so climate change specifically is looking at the waste side of the energy economy, the CO2, obviously a little bit from agriculture and waste management and other things, but mostly from the energy economy. The other side of the energy economy, the extraction side, obviously our oil spills and our mountaintop removal mining and whatever as well as geopolitical destabilization regarding oil and pipelines, of which the current situation, that's one of the factors. But we also have the situation that we have a diminishing return on the quality of hydrocarbons available to us for energy. The reason why we're fracking in tar sands and deep offshore drilling is because we used up most of the easy ones. And so it takes a certain amount of oil to get more oil, right? And that amount is increasing. We're getting decreasing returns. The energy is pegged to dollars, And so the dollars have an exponential need to keep increasing to keep up with interest. We have a diminishing return on hydrocarbons. They're pretty much pegged to each other because dollars represent using energy to move atoms or bits around. So there's a real reckoning problem. And the get renewables up in time isn't even close to on path. The increased energy use is accelerating faster than the renewables are closing the gap. And the renewables take a lot of coal and oil, right? Like there's a lot of energy return on energy investment. So if we just even take climate change and look at the other side of the linear economy on just that thing, just hydrocarbons, we can see there's way more major issues. And then that's true across waste management from mining and agriculture and whatever, all the things. So what I see is that the limits of growth, the planetary boundaries topic is the result of the cumulative effect of industrial tech and globalization. So all the environmental things you can think of as cumulative industrial tech. Then you get the kind of nuclear tech where no one's trying to kill everything with the industrial tech through externalities, not that you're intending to do one thing and the second order effect is what's causing this problem. When we're talking about warfare, it's a different thing. It's an intentional use of destructive capability. And as you said, being a student of History growing up, a student of warfare, very related, right? Like so much of the history of the world was defined by violent conflict. So World War II was really pretty novel because there was always an arms race of somebody's developing a better fortress or someone else develops a better cannon and right, you have an arms race on offense and defense. Once you get up to nuclear, as soon as you would have better military tech, there would be a race of who could deploy it fastest for strategic advantage and the race of who could advance their technology better. As soon as you got to nuclear and you got a war that was unwinnable, and if anyone deployed it, you had mutually assured destruction. For the first time ever, rather than a race to deploy your military tech, we had to ensure that no one ever deployed it. We never saw a situation where the major superpowers didn't war for a long period of time. So post-World War II, with the USSR and the USA, you know, we had this Cold War scenario, you had to ensure that there was no major kinetic war again. And that took a pretty profound situation to engineer how to do that. That's this post-World War II system. That world has kind of broken down now and led to all of the other catastrophes that we'll get to. So we said there's kind of cumulative effects of industrial tech that cause the environmental issues. Then nuclear and digital tech Nuclear gives us the first ever fully catastrophic capability. Digital tech gives us exponential capabilities. Computers allow you to make better computers, so you get exponential returns. That has affected markets. Exponentially larger market caps and total number of users and customers per the number of employees in the company, and reach and speed and scale. Exponential tech speeds up the rate at which very destructive things can happen. Similarly with AI, AI both can accelerate the overall economy, which means accelerate all the environmental harms. And you say, no, 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 it'll create a bunch of efficiencies. Yeah, but whenever you get an increase in efficiency, the market increases because you just lowered the cost of a material input. So a bunch of things that weren't profitable are now profitable. You get an increase in the efficiency and energy and more total energy gets used. But that's true across basically the market in general.
0: What could an everyday example be of that?
2: Very specifically, if energy becomes cheaper, we use more energy, not less. It's not that like now, because we got an efficiency in energy production, we're going to use less energy. It's that now there's a whole bunch of markets that weren't quite profitable when we lowered the cost of energy as one of the industrial inputs. And that basically is the surface area of the profitability of the market that grows faster than the efficiency. There's a book called The Maximum Power Principle. It addresses something that they think of as the fourth law of thermodynamics. And it basically says, if there is exploitable energy in an environment with positive return, it takes less energy to exploit it than the energy you get, it will be exploited. Because if you don't, somebody else will. If they do, they win in some rivalrous dynamic. So there is like a game theoretic trap to exploit all the energy. The environment's fucked as long as that's true, which means that we're fucked. So we have to overcome that thing. I can get into why I think Market mechanisms alone don't overcome that thing, and it takes something else. But the exponential tech, whether we're talking about the effects that AI has already on breaking democracies through Facebook and the AI personalization of feeding everybody's bias, if people haven't already watched The Social Dilemma, that's a good intro to those topics, or if we're talking like AI-empowered weapons, that is very relevant in this particular conflict in the world right now both population-centric warfare attacks on mindsets of people and being able to radicalize mindsets of people within countries, turn them against each other, that kind of thing, which is radically easy with the internet and social media. I just Um, want to
0: flag my deep immersion in your work and how it's made me think I haven't been on Instagram for a very long time because of it. The concept that we're being intellectually farmed and we are participating in our own demise by the way we're being farmed down algorithms through hashtags into these funnels of thought and feeling and outrage, how we collectively make sense of things together when we are being radicalised and we don't really understand it because of the overwhelm and the fact that it helps us feel something. When Russia invades the Ukraine, being down a hashtag rabbit hole feels like you're doing something.
2: Well, this is the thing we were saying earlier about agency. When people have a low sense of agency, there's a desire to have some sense of agency, even if it's not real. Also, when people have a low sense of belonging, when people have a lot of uncertainty and overwhelm, fake certainty, fake belonging, fake agency are pretty problematic. And ultimately get to be in service of somebody else's agency and strategy that you probably aren't aware of in full.
0: We could just talk about that for like the next 10 hours and you could run a whole workshop fake agency and fake belonging, which is ultimately being harvested for one company or two companies, financial gain. We are being gamed in a system that is narrowly gaming us into corners and we're walking into wars now.
2: The Social Dilemma does a good job of it. We've addressed this in a bunch of places. You can go to Tristan Harris's podcast, Your Undivided Attention, get a good overview, but to just briefly touch on it, social media's business model involves monetizing attention. And they make money by selling ads. So they need you to spend time on site and to click on stuff. And they have pretty powerful AIs that can monitor what you click on and what you hover on and what you share and what you like and build psychological behavioral models of you. They're quite complex based on that and based on your network and what they do and how networks of psychologies work. And then they have an almost infinity of content that is produced that you're not going to see all of in your newsfeed. So what you see is going to be curated based on what's going to engage you. So some combination of time on site, what will keep you on there most, and meaningful social interaction or engagement. What are you going to like? click on, comment on, share, that kind of thing. And that all seems reasonable if there's way more information than you could possibly look at. Look at the stuff that is going to seem relevant to you based on what you interact with and spend time with. And using an advertising model to sell you stuff that you end up wanting and make the product free, like all of it kind of makes sense in a certain logic. And there's positive things that it's created and everybody knows that.
0: And that's always the argument that the market will regulate things, that it'll all be okay, look at the positive benefits. What people aren't understanding is the profound destabilization and interconnected in the way that you understand it. There's always a lot of justification for why we're in the corner that we're in.
2: There's a game theoretic advantage to being more focused on The benefits than the downsides, if you can socialize or externalize the downsides to the common while privatizing the benefits. And those who focus on the benefits and tell that narrative of the benefits will move quickly to get them. Those who focus on the things that it might harm and say, no, we don't want to do this, will probably just not get much power at all because they're not moving on how to extract and exploit something. So, you know, to some degree, the dominant narrative is usually support for or apologism for whatever the current power structure is. And it almost couldn't be something else. The Consilience Project did a really nice piece called Where Arguments Come From that talks about for an idea to catch on, somebody has to really want the idea to get researched and then to spend time distributing it, which costs money, which usually means there's some motivation. So it talks about kind of the think tank industrial complex and the financial and political interests driving what actually creates up the intellectual sphere of ideas. And we did a series on propaganda that kind of gave an overview of this whole big discipline of how propaganda works and then how it's changed internet age. So the Facebook thing isn't intending to radicalize everyone. It's a second order effect in the same way that the oil companies are not intending to Venusify the planet. They're intending to provide oil so that you and I can talk. So with Facebook, the secondary effect is that when the AI has to curate your newsfeed based on what maximally engages you to keep their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to maximize profit, it turns out that the things that could engage your emotional brain that limbically hijack you make you spend more time on site and engage more than the things that keep you clear thinking. And so it ends up optimizing for limbic hijacks, which is some combination of social in-group, out-group stuff, and outrage. If you look at the newsfeed of two different people who are on opposite sides of a political divide, they will usually have not a single thing in common, but they feel like their newsfeed is a representation of the world. So obviously, how does anything like a democracy work if you have to have shared choice making? But that shared choice making requires shared sense making of what's happening, what is base reality and shared meaning making of what matters. It doesn't. So that orients towards the break of democratic systems and authoritarian systems do better in the presence of it. They can also regulate it better. So we've seen China regulate its internet for these reasons, and it's not dumb to have done that. There's a lot of things that if we really paid attention to all the externalities, we should not do, but there isn't enough incentive to pay attention to that because doing the thing ends up conferring short-term advantage. And this is, I would say, one of the problems in general is that there's a bunch of game theoretic issues If anybody builds the AI weapon, everybody has to race to build the AI weapon faster. Otherwise, they lose when that guy deploys it. If anyone is going to overfish, then me not overfishing doesn't leave the fish in the oceans. They'll all be taken by the other guys anyways. They'll grow their population faster, which will beat us at economics and war and whatever else. So we just all race to exploit the thing faster. Unless we can make treaties where we all agree not to, but that would require transparency and enforcement. It's very hard to have transparency of what are they doing in a secret black project regarding their AI weapons and you know those types of things. So you can see that there are these places, multipolar traps, we call them, where everyone pursuing their own rational best interest, whether a company, a country, their own rational best interest in the short term has the collective action do something that is maximally bad for everybody in the long term and maximally bad for everybody with cumulative effects of industrial tech, plus the much more potent fast effects of exponential tech ends up causing all these catastrophic risks we talk about.
0: We're not talking about the softer powers of our humanity, love, morality, ethics. This is game theory. This is looking at the cold, hard reality of the systems we've designed that are driving us off the cliff. This is what it means to truly actually be awake to the systems we're living in, playing in, investing in. This game theory just feels like the most essential conversation to be having right now. Because then we can have all the other layers of conversations as long as we're plugging it into something we're paying attention to. A lot of people don't want to feel that cascade to understand those externalities. For me, the further I got into business, the further I got into investing from the built environment to renewable energy, it all leads you to policy. And then you're looking at what's happening at government house and you realize that we're on this one planet together with all these different governance systems. Some linked, but it's all driving us off the same cliff together. I know you're going to walk us home to how we can address this, but the very, very difficult part of hearing what you've just said is, I think, essential before the next part of what you're going to say, just to take it in and understand and not be overwhelmed. Overwhelm
2: can arise when we look at a situation that we care about, that we don't know what to do with. You don't say, well, this is too painful. I need to distract myself. Or just get lost and overwhelmed. You say, have anybody come up with interesting solutions? Have any people thought about this well? Like, let's at least see if we can come to understand where the cutting edge of the thinking is. And then when you're at the cutting edge of the thinking, do we understand the problem space well enough to know what we need to solve for
0: I love what you said. And it's a really important discipline. If you can weave head, heart and hands, you can have the feelings, you can have the agency, and you can also hang in there long enough to ask The useful questions.
2: Heart being care and values and what is ultimately meaningful that you want to orient your action to, and hands being the action itself. How do we actually increase agency and capacity to act? And head being, how do we understand the cause of the issues and what viable solutions would look like well enough to know what appropriate action is? Those all have to work together. And any combination of two of those only ends up not being adequate at all. This was an insight I had when I was a kid, looking at activism being a high sense of agency and a low sense of strategic clarity on how to be effective, where the people were willing to work hard, sacrifice themselves, really cared, and absolutely didn't know how to be effective at moving things at scale. Some people who understood the complexity of the world more and really cared, but didn't have agency and didn't know kind of how agentic intelligence worked just felt crippled by it. And the people who could shut down or life had shut down the wideness of care and they just really had high agency and high strategic capacity ended up running the world, but externalizing harm along the process, being in competition with each other and driving all these problems.
1: That was part one of our scintillating conversation with Daniel Schmachtenberger. Part two will be with you next week and begins with Barry inviting him to take us home to help us see where to go from here with this picture of humanity that he's just laid out for us. I look forward to being with you back then. Bye for now. Loving Earth are chocolate makers from Melbourne. They make chocolate that satisfies more than the taste buds. They're on a regenerative journey and invite you to join them. To find out more, head to their Instagram account at LovingEarth or their website, www.lovingearth.net.